The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Paul Facker. He is a journalist and consultant who now lives in Madrid, Spain. He is a former fellow at the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard. For several years, he led a series of high-profile investigations in the United States Senate that led to reforms in medicine, including the passage of the Physicians Payment Sunshine Act. He has written on scientific ethics for numerous outlets, including the Columbia Journalism Review, the New York Times, the Journal of the American Medical Association, New England Journal of Medicine, and The Progressive. I stumbled upon Mr. Thacker's work when I was reading about the biotech industry and the ag chemical industries, and he wrote a fascinating article titled Flacking for GMOs, How the Biotech Industry Cultivates Positive Media and Discourages Criticism. And I thought that in this age of fake news and this snarly world of misinformation, it's so important for us to know how to navigate this news that we face every day. So welcome, Mr. Thacker. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thanks so much for having me. The first question I want to ask is, how did you become a journalist? What led you into this profession? So I went to college, and I started off, I really liked birds, and I liked animals and stuff like that. And then I like was very interested in uh, evolutionary biology and other aspects of biology. And then I went to college, and what I really liked was evolutionary biology and population biology. But you really have to be a really good mathematician to know those kinds of things. And so I didn't do so well in some classes. And then I realized one day what I really was interested in is various aspects of science and, and how the world works. And so I went into journalism because I like explaining how things work. Exactly. Well, you've done some high-profile investigations. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the reforms in medicine, and what led you to become a fellow at the Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard? So what happened was, as I began working in environmental science, what I found out over time was that there was oftentimes multiple studies that had been published showing that, for instance, a chemical might be dangerous, or that you might... One thing that I learned early on was that climate change was like actually something happening, and so I began to ask, like, why were we not making these decisions to deal with these problems that science was finding? And what you find is that nothing's changing because there are, at the same time, on the other side of the equation, these large corporations that are pushing back, creating their own science, creating panels of their own experts, and messaging against what independent scientists find. And so that eventually led me to work on the Senate, where I took some of those same ideas that I had and found that much of the same thing was happening in medicine. Surprisingly, we've all read stories about corruption in the pharmaceutical industry. The latest which we're dealing with right now is the opioid uh, epidemic, which is 
killing tens of thousands of Americans every year. And so when I was in the Senate, what I worked on was passing a bill that would require corporations, pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies to publish when they were giving money to scientists. Because what we know is that whoever has the gold, they buy the data. So if you are a corporation or a federal agency, you have the power to require studies to be done. And whoever is paying for those studies, you find that they tend to reflect back what the funder is asking for you to look for. Mm -hmm. And so what we passed was a bill that requires companies to disclose when they give money to doctors, so now you can look your doctor up. Mm -hmm. And that led me to the Saffir Center. Mm -hmm. Well, it's really interesting that you've started to look at the biotech industry because I see the biotech industry infiltrate and indoctrinate my peers in nutrition and dietetics. And I think that certainly as a healthcare provider, my ethics requires me to act in the public good and always for public health. And I also see our land-grant universities where most dietetics programs are located having shrinking budgets. And so we depend more on these public-private partnerships. And as you mentioned, who gives the grant money or who is controlling the research questions that we ask? You know, how can we report on things if it's going to sacrifice funding in the future? So I loved your article. This was way back in July of 2017. And you reported on Monica Eng, who I've actually spoken with in the past. She's a reporter with Chicago's WBEZ. It's an NPR station. And she had uncovered the fact that there was an University of Illinois professor, Bruce Chassie, who was speaking as an expert. Uh, we thought he would be you know, untainted from industry, but in fact, he was taking money from Monsanto, and that influenced what he said. And so when Monica Eng reported that, she got massive blowback, and she was accused by the university as being an activist and not a journalist. So... How does this happen? What's going on is is that this process, this is called a third-party process, and it's a very time-worn process that goes back to the 60s, maybe even further back, where corporations realize that what you want to do is, if I, Paul Thacker, say Paul Thacker is like amazingly honest, and you should believe everything he says, that has zero value. If you hear someone else say it, that has more value because it's not me talking about myself. It's someone else talking about their experience with me. Unless you learn that before that person says this, I gave them $20. And then you begin to wonder, like, okay, does that person really say what they think about this guy? Or is they saying it because he just gave them $20 to say this? Right. You know? So this third-party technique works really well when corporations will pass money over to professors at universities because then it looks like you're not getting a message from someone who has a conflict of interest. It's someone who's very independent. It's like, well, let me tell you what I think. Right. And so what companies do oftentimes is they will then supply money to these third-party people. It's better if they're professors because then it gets like the emeritus professor title attached to it and not spokesperson for... Corporation X. And so that's what Monsanto was doing with Bruce Chassie is, is they were providing him money to serve as a third party for them 
on a host of issues, writing letters to government agencies, lobbying on their behalf in front of federal agencies. He eventually set up a nonprofit that he operated. When you look at their address for the nonprofit, it actually operated out of his retirement home where he was no longer living in Illinois. He was living in North Dakota, I think, hmm. where he's North, I can't remember. He moved to another state yeah. and bought a retirement house, and he's running it from his appeal box in the, in the small town where he lives at now, maybe Idaho. And so this then serves as a potential legitimate voice that corporations want to propel into the public dialogue, and that's what his job was doing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that he did, actually, was he wrote an op-ed for the Hill, which is a you know fairly influential, they're called Hill Rags, you know one of the many newspapers that reports on Congress. He had an op-ed in the Hill in which he called out the World Health Organization's cancer agency and said that they were putting out biased science because they had found that glyphosate, which is one of the, which is the pesticide that's required for many GMO crops to grow that the World Health Organization was engaging in biased science and that Congress should investigate, which they are now. Like Several committees have launched investigations of the World Health Organization's cancer finding agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I have found universally is that, or fairly universally, is that most people trust university professors. Maybe we have the illusion that they have funding that is not connected to any corporate interest. But in reality, what we're finding is that there are several individuals who are affiliated with land-grant colleges who are indeed going out and singing or praising the corporate message. Another one, in addition to Bruce Chassie, is Kevin Falta at the University of Florida. I know he has spoken at dietetic association conferences, for example, reassuring dietitians that Genetic engineering is safe, and you can trust these foods and these crops. This is how we're going to feed the world. And yet, he's got connection to the biotech industry. What happened to him was Kevin Fulton was exposed on the front page of the New York Times in 2015 for having taken money from Monsanto to fly across the country and talk and at times even try to stifle regulations around GMO crops. These documents are publicly available, including his filing expense reports with Monsanto, wow. and yet he's now at a point where he wants to deny that he's done what he's done, and he's now suing the New York Times saying that I didn't do those things that I did. So take it for what it's worth. Well, Google is amazing. Google can help you. People who don't have access to Google might be questioning what's true and what's not true. Well, I think that the social media and the access to information as well as misinformation is really difficult for the average consumer to navigate. And I will include in that average consumer healthcare providers, including dietitians. So, for example, at our annual conference, GMO Answers was there, and they were encouraging dietitians to ask questions about GMOs. That's great. The problem is the answers are provided by the biotech industry or an industry that has, they must have profits every quarter 
to satisfy their shareholders, where those of us who work in public health are driven not by a profit motive, hopefully, but by our ethics, which state that our first and foremost mission is to protect public health. Well, I'm not surprised to see that GMO Answers is, is going around the country at different science societies giving talks. They were formed probably three to four years ago. They were mostly formed in response to the label initiative in California, and it's actually run by a PR firm, Ketchum. Ketchum was caught previously in around 2010. In They were part of a spy ring, essentially, that was spying on nonprofit groups in D.C. They were doing everything from, I think, just normal monitoring of media, which is, like, fine, whatever. But they also were caught hiring off-duty D.C. police officers to do dumpster diving of some of these groups. And it seems that they may have actually hired people to, like, get hired by groups like Greenpeace, which doesn't really have a GMO campaign that's going on right now. So they also represent a lot of third-world dictators. I just don't know to what degree anything coming out of GMO Answers run by Ketchum PR is worthwhile. They're doing PR. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, let me take one short break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Mr. Paul Thacker. He is a journalist and consultant who is actually speaking to us from Madrid, Spain, and he has written several fascinating articles exposing the biotech industry's reach into the world of journalists. So we rely, Mr. Thacker, on journalists to find the truth, although I know that many journalism schools say, you know, we have to present both sides of an issue. But ultimately, I think when I speak with most journalists, the mission that they have is that they want to get to the bottom of something. They want to bring the truth to their readers. What are your tips for consumers? How do we find the truth in a very corrupt system? Well, it's funny you bring it up. I actually had a discussion with a friend of mine who's teaching journalism a year ago, and we were asked, how do you know what to trust when you read something in the press, something that even journalists deal with? How do you know when something's real? And the thing that I came up with is that you can trust two things. You can trust the outlets. Some outlets are obviously better than others. And you can also trust the name. So the caveats on that are that people in journalism know specific reporters, even outlets like the New York Times, who are just really bad at their jobs and are not good at what they're doing. And so whenever you see that name pop up attached to a story, you just dismiss it. But there are also some outlets that are not that high profile, that's not that well known, but who have hired like very good journalists. And you'll know these things by seeing over time, how they perform. It's not like a single article that's going to point it out to you any more than a single article is going to like drag it down. People make mistakes. People have high points, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the problem with operating right now in, in today's media environment is that it's really hard to tell. So part of it is it's just familiarity of knowing. You want to be careful in not just latching on to someone who tells you what you want to think, which makes it harder because... Now, as the media is more bifurcated, it almost requires you to read more broadly. Right. time-consuming. Right. Yeah, it's a lot Probably of work enough. to dig up the truth. Right. There is also an article that you wrote for the Huffington Post, and I thought this was interesting. It was Keith Kluwer's endearing love affair with GMOs, and he is actually a New York University's adjunct journalism professor, and you say that he has curious ideas about science and reporting. Tell me what you mean. 
what Keith does is, is Keith has basically bonded himself to a lot of third-party scientists. He's done a lot of reporting in which when you look back at like who he quoted in his stories, you find out, wow, they're all found to have been like somehow working with Monsanto. Mm-hmm. This is so crazy. Like, why does that keep happening with you? The thing you you know about journalists is that they're only as good as their sources. The whole point is not to necessarily know specifics. It's knowing who are experts to be called upon. And that's a skill set which some people have and some people don't. And in this situation, we have an individual who like does not have that skill set. Mm-hmm. And that's why you begin to see stories that are popping up that when you pick at them a little bit, they fall apart. Right. And also, I think his work in many ways with Kevin Folta to try and downplay a corporate message, which right. is very problematic. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I recently was interviewed by a reporter at the Washington Post. And I think the New York Times, the Washington Post, I think they have fairly good reputations in the world. And I responded to her questions. It was about dietitians, actually, and how many times if we say something that is anti-corporate messaging about food, we will be attacked, even by our own peers. And we see this all the time on Twitter feeds and Facebook groups. There are certain names that keep popping up as attacking anyone who questions the science of biotechnology, which I find so ironic because, of course, science is supposed to be based on inquiry. Once you stop asking questions, you're in trouble. But what was so interesting for me was my main point that I made to her, first and foremost, was not included in the story. So... Mm -hmm. Even in reputable news organizations, the reader has to be very careful, I think, to ask what might be missing from this story. Right. And again, I can't speak to that specific incident, but what I can tell you is that you don't know why something is, a reporter might call you up and why something that is that does not end up in a story. It could be because someone else said something that said the same thing. It could be like six people said something the opposite. It could be like things got cut out because because a quote was not that great and didn't shine that well for the story. The thing about journalism is that it, it doesn't just have a, an aspect of just, well, here are the facts and let's just spit them out. It's also trying to tell a story that goes beyond uh, sometimes it's trying to have a narrative, which is part of the, one of the many problems right now in science journalism is people are looking for good stories. They're not looking for accurate stories. They're looking for good stories. Mm. And that's where... Science journalism has gone astray. But it's very captivated right now with its finding narratives that it wants to sell. And that's where corporations can come in because you have time with focus groups and panels and such to think about a narrative that can sell well in the media. So they're able to provide narratives that are easily accessible and that make sense in a reporter's head, and so that's why we're seeing some of these corporate messages ending up in journalism right now, to be honest. What do you think makes a good story? It's hard to tell. I mean, to me, I like uncovering new things. and think I'm part of that Washington crowd, which thinks whatever room you're in, there's always there's a door that leads to another room with like even more information, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm part of that kind of crowd. So that's what kind of captivates me, is the idea of what's really going on here. What's really happening? I'm less impressed with the, this is a really great story. I like the narrative voice in this story. That fascinates me much less. 
I'm much more about, okay, what's really going on? Right. Who's trying to win here, and what are they trying to win? Yeah. Well, you know, I thought it was interesting in your piece for The Progressive, you have a quote from Michael Pollan in which he says, the industry's PR campaign to reframe the GMO debate and intimidate journalists through harassment and name-calling has been remarkably successful in my view. And I think we've both experienced that, where we've been attacked for trying to expose the truth or trying to ask different questions. Tell me more about harassment and name-calling and something you called out called the Let Nothing Go campaign. So what's going on there is, so you've got to have the carrot and the stick. So you've got to have the nice narrative that comes out, right, which says that GMOs are awesome and they're going to fix world hunger and they're going to solve our need for pesticide use, and we're going to help farmers make more money, and agriculture is going to be awesome. You've got to also have, at the same time, the positive message, right? You've got to also have the negative, which is to cut out anyone who tries to attack your message, who tries to poke holes in your narrative. Mm-hmm. And so that part we're now learning from court documents is a program. There's one program that's called Let Nothing Go, which is a program designed to attack people on social media when they write anything that might be perceived as negative for GMOs, Monsanto or glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in the... In Roundup. ...required for GMO crops. One formulation is known as Roundup. Right. And so that has been very important in trying to shut reporters up from talking about things that might be perceived as negative. Mm-hmm. Another part of that game is creating corporate front groups, and two that have been identified are the Genetic Literacy Project, which is run by a former reporter named uh, John Entine, and another one called Academics Review, which seems to be somewhat defunct right now, but which is run by, again, this re- emeritus professor, Bruce Chassey, who runs it with his wife out of a P.O. box in their the small town of their retirement home. Right. Well, what do you want our listeners to know going forward from an insider's perspective of what's going on in journalism and how can we fix it? I think the thing that needs to happen is if you, I mean, you know, you get what you pay for, right? So in the same way in which you, know, you talk about why are certain professors saying certain things, why is an agency maybe saying something different? It's like who is behind the financial support of that message, if it's a public health or a public interest group, it's going to have a public health, public interest focus. If it's a corporation, it's going to have a financial focus on trying to create profits for that corporation. And so if you're interested in getting good information in a situation in which journalism is now going through a free fall, then what you want to do is you want to begin to support journalism. Right. You get what you pay for in life, right? Yes. I mean, put your money down. Begin coughing up. The money so that the outlets you're going to for information are going to give information that's, that's of value to people who are supporting the production of that information. Right. I find it interesting that you're living in Europe now. What comparisons can you make between the media that you were involved with in the U.S. and the media that you are navigating now in Spain? Well, I'm still reporting mostly from American outlets. What I can tell you for living in Spain right now and watching what's happening in the media here, it's 
super frightening because the New York Times actually did an expose about a year and a half ago about the Spanish media and talking about how because some of the media outlets are owned by corporations that either are indebted to banks or they're actually owned by banks or they're owned by political parties, a lot of the media outlets, there are stories that are being squashed, stories that are not being reported about corruption that's happening within the Spanish system. And what was interesting is I did not actually see that original story. I actually read a response to it in El País, which is one of the main newspapers here. And then when I saw the huge outcry about how the New York Times screwed everything up, I then Googled the New York Times story and read it. And this is something that's called the Streisand effect, where because someone says something is so wrong, it actually draws more attention to it. And I read the story. I'd actually been out like a few weeks prior to this out with a reporter. And the story was well reported. There's like some serious problems in the Spanish media. This is scary. I think with the problem from being here in Europe and seeing what's happening in the Spanish media, I don't see how this is not coming next for the American media. I think the main thing that people need to be worried about is who is going to be supporting and who's going to be paying for our news. And we're seeing less and less news in small towns and in small cities across America. The newspapers in the major outlet in the major cities, they're also dying. I have serious problems at times with stuff that I read in the Washington Post. Me too. Because I can tell that there's stuff appearing in the Washington Post that is not well reported. So I have concerns about how we get information. Me too, yeah. That's the main problem. Well, do you want to leave our listeners with a charge before we close? I think the thing to think about on this particular issue is, I I will say a couple things. What we have to think about is, as we begin to move towards this type of agriculture, how are we changing our agricultural systems? And who are we allowing to be in charge of decisions that are being made? I think also another thing to think about is how is this benefiting or harming farmers? And I also have concerns about how this process is corrupting our regulatory agencies because when you hear that these crops are like, and these processes are like very well regulated, that's not true. That's not true. Right. Well, not only are they not well regulated, but the science that is often used by regulatory agencies is that which is generated from the industry that profits from the products themselves. And even so let me correct that. It's not often, it's always. Okay? Always. The mm. process for approval is submitted by the company. The FDA comes back and says, you company have affirmed to us that this product is safe. It's based upon the affirmation of the corporation submitting the application. So there's no independent process to verify it. That's the way drugs work also, pharmaceuticals work also. You know, it's always based upon the corporation submitting data. Two things to think about that. How often have we seen drugs pulled off the market for dangerous? Right, right. Have we seen black box warnings on drugs for dangerous? Right. But also understand that that process inside the FDA, which regulates drugs, is considered the gold standard of the world. And these people have a pretty decent understanding of how to regulate drugs. In the area of GMO crop regulation, we don't really have a very well-refined process at all right now. It's really much catch-as-catch-can. Mm-hmm. Which always leads me to question this idea that there is no evidence of harm. I think we just haven't perhaps done the studies and looked, maybe asked the right questions, but we need a lot more research, independently funded research, I might add. 
Independent research is always the best research. Exactly. Well, Mr. Thacker, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. We need to close. Unfortunately, our time is up, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thanks again, Mr. Thacker, journalist, consultant who now lives in Madrid, Spain, and I will provide links to some of your excellent stories so our readers can learn more. Well, thank you so much.